can see my screen. Yes. All right. So my talk today is on guideline-based hypertension management. Um, I've already warned some of you that this topic is a little bit dry uh, and a little bit basic, um, but I, uh, I went over a, a lot of the different um, society guidelines and tried to kind of um, put them together uh, for this talk. So Okay, so the outline for this talk, I'm gonna talk about epi and the definition of hypertension um, according to the different uh, guidelines. Um, I'll uh, then talk about how they recommend diagnosing hypertension, which varies uh, depending on the guidelines that you look at, um, and then what should be done with the evaluation. Uh, finally, the treatment regimens that are recommended by the different guidelines. Uh, like I said, they're all a little bit different depending on uh, uh, different comorbidities. Um, so I'll get into that a little bit as well. Um, if there is time, uh, I suspect that there should be a little bit of time at the end. Um, I'll go into resistant and secondary hypertension, which is uh, more of the, the fun stuff. Uh, and then hypertension in pregnancy, which um, I admit my knowledge is lacking in. Uh, and then finally, hypertensive emergencies. So uh, elevated blood pressure remains the lead, uh, leading cause of death globally. Uh, it accounts for 10.4 million deaths per year. Uh, globally, an estimated 1.4 billion people have hypertension. Uh, that's from uh, numbers from 2010. Um, and blood pressure trends show a shift uh, of the highest blood pressures from high income to low income regions. And there's an estimated 350 million people with hypertension in high income areas and 1 billion in low income areas. Um, and despite several initiatives, the prevalence of uh, elevated blood pressure and the adverse impact um, on cardiovascular morbidity and mortality continue to be increasing globally. Uh, and that's irrespective of income. Uh, so these population-based initiatives have been uh, adopted to try to reduce the global burden of uh, hypertension. Uh, mostly they include things like salt reduction activities um, and improving availability of fresh fruit and vegetables. <clears throat> so to improve the management of hypertension, the International Society of Hypertension, the European Cardiology Society uh, and European Society of Hypertension, the Department of Defense and Veterans Affairs, the American uh, College of Cardiology, American Association of uh, Family Physicians, they've all published uh, clinical practice guidelines for the management of hypertension. Um, and those are the guidelines that I'll be um, talking about uh, during this talk. So why use guidelines? Uh, the different sets of guidelines um, have been developed based on evidence-based criteria that can be used globally. Um, they can be fit for application in low and high resource settings uh, by advising on essential and optimal standards. Uh, and then they're concise, simplified, and easy to use. That's subjective. Some of them are not so concise, uh, simplified, and easy to use, but others are better than, um, than some others. Um, and of note, most of the guidelines are developed without any support from industry or other sources. So I mentioned the guidelines that I use for this talk. Um, the International Society of Hypertension, I think is the, the best one. I'll get into that uh, in more detail. The reason I think uh, it's the best is because um, it's not as complicated um, and it tends to kind of be the average of the others. Um, I 
touch on KDGO guidelines, uh, the 2020 um, best practice guidelines. Uh, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, NICE, which is based on um, a European co uh, uh, group of um, physicians, then the European uh, Cardiology Society and the European Society of Hypertension. Um, Dr. Yamada requested that I add the Veterans Affairs and DOD clinical practice guidelines. They're a little bit different and they're, uh, they're pretty interesting. Um, and then I mentioned the ACC and AHA as well. Uh, so the, for the definition of hypertension, it can be diagnosed when a person's systolic pressure in the office uh, or the clinic is greater than 140 uh, and or their diastolic pressure is greater than 90 following repeated exam. And this is based on the ISH guidelines. So this table provides a classification of blood pressure based on office blood pressure measurements. Uh, and these measurements apply to uh, all adults. So the reason that they have these categories is that the blood pressure categories are designed to align with therapeutic approaches. Um, so high normal blood pressure uh, is intended to identify individuals who could benefit from lifestyle interventions um, and would only receive pharmacological intervention if um, there are other treatment indications such as other cardiovascular risk factors. And then individuals identified with confirmed hypertension, grade one or grade two, should receive uh, pharmacological therapy. And usually most guidelines suggest that for grade two hypertension, they should be started on two blood pressure medications. So moving on to diagnosis, uh, this part I'll admit is, um, this is the, the most bland part of the talk, but it's good to kind of go over these. Um, I, again, used most of the guidelines to come up with this um, general guidelines on how to measure uh, blood pressure in the office. Uh, they all, uh, all the guidelines give recommendations on how to appropriately measure blood pressure. Um, so this is a summary of that. So they recommend um, a general quiet setting um, and nothing crazy before taking the blood pressure, like excess caffeine, smoking, or exercise 30 minutes prior to the appointment. Uh, notably, most and most of the guidelines say no one should talk before or during the measurements. Uh, and that's something I feel like uh, I, I don't think is followed very often. Uh, the patient should be sitting with their arm at mid heart level with feet flat, flat on the floor. We all know that. Um, cuff size is important uh, as the smaller cuffs overestimate blood pressure and larger cuffs underestimate blood pressure. Blood pressure should be measured three times during each visit, and the average of the last two measurements should be used. I don't think that we do that in our clinic. I am not sure about what the uh, uh, MAs are doing, but I don't think we're doing that. Um, and then also, whenever possible, the diagnosis should not be made on a single office visit. They usually recommend two to three office visits at one to four week intervals um, to confirm the diagnosis. Um, they say that you can make a diagnosis on a single visit if blood pressure is greater than 180 over 110. And that's based on ISH guidelines. Uh, the NICE guidelines say greater than 180 over 120, and you can make a diagnosis on one visit. So um, as we know, office blood pressure, not always reflective of patient's true blood pressure. So most guidelines do recommend some sort of confirmatory home blood pressure monitoring. Uh, on initial evaluation in the office, they recommend measuring blood pressure in both arms, uh, preferably simultaneously. 
I don't think that ever happens. Uh, if there's a consistent difference between uh, both arms uh, greater than 10, then use the arm with the higher blood pressure. And if the difference is greater than 20, uh, you should consider further investigation. And um, that includes things like looking for coarctation of the aorta. Uh, they also recommend getting a standing blood pressure in patients who have symptoms of orthostatic hypotension and are on medications. And uh, interestingly, they recommend uh, standing blood pressure for all diabetics and elderly. Uh, and then home blood pressure measurement is better and uh, in studies has been more closely associated with risk of cardiovascular events. And they do recommend confirming hypertension when it is borderline in the office with the home uh, ambulatory blood pressure man, uh, measurements. So um, for home monitoring, the ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, um, I mentioned it's useful because it can identify white coat hypertension as well as masked hypertension. So uh, patients with white coat hypertension are at intermediate cardiovascular risk between uh, normal tensive patients and those with sustained hypertension. Uh, if the uh, patient's total cardiovascular risk is low and there's no evidence of hypertension-mediated uh, organ damage, then you don't necessarily need um, pharmacologic intervention for white coat hi hypertension. Um, but of course, they should be, uh, they should, uh, be followed with lifestyle modification. Um, since those patients are at risk for developing sustained hypertension. Patients with uh, masked hypertension are at similar uh, risk of cardiovascular events as sustained hypertensives. Um, and these um, patients may require drug treatment to normalize the out-of-office blood pressure. So going uh, into the home uh, monitoring uh, method. So there's the home uh, blood pressure measurements. Uh, or home blood pressure monitoring. Uh, that's basically what we usually have patients do. They recommend that uh, patients should take their blood pressure for three to seven days prior to their appointments. And those measurements should actually be taken prior to their dose of morning medications. Uh, they should take two measurements after resting for five minutes. Uh, and they should, uh, and longer term, uh, they should measure it for one to two times per week or month. Interestingly, with home blood pressure monitoring, an average blood pressure of greater than 135 over 85 is defined as hypertension. So that's a lower threshold than uh, for office measurements. Um, and then 24-hour uh, ambulatory monitoring, that's uh, the one that you wear around the clock and it measures your blood pressure at 15 to 30 minute intervals. Uh, and you can see that the definition of hypertension for um, for this type of monitoring is different from in-office and home monitoring. Um, an average blood pressure of greater than 130 over 80 in a 24-hour period is considered hyper hypertension. So that's an even lower threshold than the, the home monitoring or the home uh, blood pressure monitoring. Uh, so this slide summarizes the definitions um, of how the based on how the blood pressure was measured, whether it's in the office, 24-hour monitoring, or home monitoring. Uh, again, as you can see, the cutoffs are lower for home blood pressures, especially for the nighttime blood pressure. So nighttime blood pressure is greater than 120 over 70 on 24-hour ambulatory monitoring uh, is considered hypertension. So uh, to summarize the diagnosis portion, you need two to three readings in the office. 
blood pressure is greater than 130 over 85, it should be uh, confirmed with home or ambulatory monitoring. And if it's greater than 135 over 85 with home monitoring or greater than 130 over 80 with 24 hour monitoring, you have the diagnosis of hypertension. So moving on to evaluation of the patient, um, the guidelines of course recommend a complete history and physical, blood pressure history, risk factors, um, and we are all familiar with this. Um, however, we in our clinic often see patients with resistant or possibly secondary hypertension. So I wanted to go over history taking for those conditions based on the guidelines. Uh, the common ones that we see are primary aldosteronism, um, and that can present with muscle weakness, tetany, cramps, arrhythmias, um, because of low potassium. Um, they recommend asking about flash pulmonary edema history uh, in consideration of renal artery stenosis. Um, if the patient has sweating, palpitations, frequent headaches, consider a pheochromocytoma. Uh, and of course, consider OSA in our obese patients uh, that snore a lot or have a large uh, neck circumference. Uh, and then uh, ask about symptoms of hypo and hyperthyroidism. Uh, uh, so exacerbators and inducers of hypertension, the guidelines recommend reviewing medications um, for possible inducers and exacerbators of hypertension with each visit. Um, a few of these are um, were new to me, uh, so I decided to include this slide about them. Uh, just going over the highlights, NSAIDs can raise blood pressure slightly, but more importantly, they antagonize the effects of RAS inhibitors and beta blockers. Um, of course, none of our patients should be on them anyway. Um, combined oral contraceptives have a mild increase in blood pressure as well. We know that one. Uh, antidepressants, uh, specifically SNRIs, have a small effect on blood pressure. Um, and a few studies showed that tricyclic antidepressants have an increased odds ratio of 3.19 for hypertension. Um, and SSRIs, so the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, don't cause uh, hypertension. One that I was not familiar with at all is that Tylenol, uh, when used on a regular basis, does have an increase in relative risk of hypertension. And then other medications that can cause hypertension or exacerbate it include steroids, antiretrovirals, sympathomimetics, uh, anti-migraine, uh, serotonergics, uh, erythropoietin, uh, among others. Uh, and Going on to the herbals, of course, we know alcohol can increase blood pressure um, chronically, and um, other herbal substances can as well, including ma wang, ginseng, licorice, St. John's wort, etc. So, Iro, quick mm -hmm. comment going back to that other slide. I think, or the one you were just on about medicines, yeah. So, after our really good grand rounds yesterday, I think the acetaminophen inducing blood pressure issues makes a lot more sense because Dr. McCabe was talking about how it inhibits the SIP enzyme in the, which is in the proximal tubule. And that's where the majority of our sodium um, uptake is occurring. And this is just a really cool kind of connection between that talk and this one. So thanks for yeah, pointing that out. That is interesting. And then I guess something with the, he said oxyproline with the chronic use, and I didn't quite catch all of that, but um, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And it's a, a pretty uh, high relative risk, 1.34. Um, so that's interesting. One thing I don't see on there is caffeine. 
That's a good point, Lewis. That's interesting, yeah. Um, and this, this slide, slide is from the International Society of Hypertension uh, guidelines, so they didn't mention that, interestingly. So All right. It, it yep. looks, I mean, that looks to me like that's a list of things that cause chronic increases of blood pressure rather than the acute ones, although alcohol is, is also acute hypertension in the withdrawal phase. Mm -hmm. so yeah, I, I don't know. Just to, sorry to interrupt, but since we have a little bit of time, Maria, so they, so, so someone was saying at a grand rounds that, that Tylenol induces sodium retention by. No, he was saying that it affects the enzymes in the proximal tubule, which is why you can get acute kidney injury without liver problems. If in acute acetaminophen overdose. He forwarded me a couple papers. I can send them to you or everyone if people are interested because it okay. was really interesting. Cool, okay, Can you forward that to everyone? Um, that's interesting. I just was thinking if the proximal tube, like if the SIP enzymes are not working, maybe that's how that works. I'm not 100% sure about that, but. Oh, people would get hypertension, Marie, as a consequence of the AKI, not because of sodium not because of increased sodium absorption in the proximal tubule. No, not related to AKI. I'm just saying chronic acetaminophen use affects the can affect the proximal tubule based on the grand rounds from yesterday. Although they were talking about it in the acute sense, but I, I'm trying to draw a connection between those two things. Yeah, Eero, do you know how it causes hypertension? Is it from increased sodium absorption in the proximal tubule or another another mechanism? Because I'm not clear uh, on that. I'm not sure. I would like yeah. to see the the papers that Maria has and I'll forward them and follow up on that. All right. Um, so all of the guidelines recommend assessing for cardiovascular risk factors. Um, with uh, each visit um, because this will affect treatment decisions uh, for patients. So more than 50% of hypertensive patients have additional cardiovascular risk factors, uh, including diabetes, lipid disorders, overweight or obesity, hyperuricemia, metabolic syndrome, and unhealthy lifestyle habits. Um, the presence of one or more uh, additional cardiovascular risk factors increases the risk of coronary, cerebrovascular, and renal disease in hypertensive patients, of course. Um, and per guidelines, the therapeutic strategy for all patients must include lifestyle changes, uh, blood pressure control as well, and the effective treatment of the other risk factors. Uh, so here's an uh, example of how that works. So um, if we choose a 60-year-old male patient, um, uh, you can see that the number of risk factors to determine whether they are at low, moderate, or high risk of uh, cardiovascular events um, based on their blood pressure category. So a few notable ones here, uh, if you have a patient with grade one hypertension, uh, going from one to two risk factors to three or more then elevates them from a moderate to high risk for cardiovascular events. Um, also notable for us, uh, most of our patients are CKD3. So CKD3 patients with hypertension um, basically puts you in the high risk category. So essentially all the patients that we see, unless for some reason they don't have CKD, um, will, uh, will qualify for uh, um, pharmacologic treatment of their hypertension. Uh, and there's risk assessment tools that they recommend using. And I just wanted to pull a couple of these up just to show. So NICE, that's the European one uh, that recommends this qrisk.org 
uh, and the ACC um, uses the ASCBD risk estimator, which is also recommended by the VA DOD guidelines. Um, so I plugged in some numbers here for the, the Q risk uh, two calculator. This is the European one. So 55 year old male, um, non-smoker, non-diabetic. Uh, can you guys see this by the way? My uh, Yes, we can see it. Okay. Um, uh, and not on blood or sorry, on blood pressure treatment, let's say he has a cholesterol or HDL of 50 total of 200. So a ratio of four systolic blood pressure, 150. I put in height 180 and weight 75. So you calculate the risk um, and it tells you your 10 uh, year risk score is 10%. Um, so these guidelines recommend anything above 10% to be treated pharmacologically. So this gentleman who I plugged in here should be treated uh, pharmacologically uh, if he is uh, grade one. Um, ASCVD risk, I put in the same patient, 55 year old male, white, 150 over 90, 250 and 150 for his cholesterol, no diabetes, non-smoker, not yet on treatment for hypertension, not on a statin or aspirin. Um, and this is actually amazing. Uh, so if you, you view advice and it tells you what to do for LDL measurement, blood pressure, tobacco cessation, et cetera, et cetera. But for our sake, let's look at blood pressure management. They recommend, uh, this patient has stage two hypertension and they uh, recommend blood pressure lowering medication with two agents. Um, so it literally tells you what to do. Um, so the ASCBD risk estimator, which is also recommended by the VA DOD is a, is a good one to use. Um, so all the guidelines recommend evaluating medication adherence at each visit. Uh, so a, a lot of studies have looked at non-adherence and how it relates to, um, uh, for example, pseudo-resistance. And uh, the estimates are between 10 and 80%. I know that's a really broad range, but um, 10 to 80% of hypertensive patients um, uh, have poor adherence. And that's one of the main reasons for poor blood pressure control. Um, and then poor adherence to antihypertensive treatment correlates with the magnitude of blood pressure elevation, of course. Uh, and interestingly, it's an indicator of poor prognosis in hypertensive patients. Um, so here's some of the strategies that they recommend um, at each visit to uh, assess for adherence, uh, including reducing polypharmacy. Um, uh, this is why a lot of the guidelines recommend uh, a single pill, uh, dual combination pills, uh, once daily dosing over multiple times per day dosing, um, linking adherence behaviors to daily habits, providing uh, adherence feedback, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you guys can all um, read the rest of those. Uh, so this is basically the, the summary of where we're at now. We talked about diagnosis and evaluation of these patients. Um, so now we're, we'll go on to treatment, which is a little more fun. So all of the guidelines recommend two major approaches, lifestyle modifications and pharmacological treatment. Um, Healthy lifestyle choices can prevent or delay the onset of high blood pressure and reduce cardiovascular risk. Uh, it's the first line of antihypertensive treatment um, uh, and it should include the following. So smoking, obviously risk factor for uh, uh, cardiovascular disease, COPD and cancer. Um, so referral to smoking cessation is advised. Uh, regular exercise is recommended, uh, regular aerobic and resistant exercise um, of 30 minutes, 
five to seven days per week is recommended by the International Society. Uh, and KDGO recommends the same, basically 150 minutes of weekly exercises in three to five sessions. Um, reducing stress, it's an interesting one. So randomized clinical trials looking at transcendental meditation and mindfulness on blood pressure uh, have sh shown that it uh, decreases blood pressure. And then uh, uh, studies also show evidence to support a negative effect of air pollution and cold temperature on blood pressure in the long term. Um, I put ha on that slide because we had the, the, the recent cold spell here in Iowa. Um, and so speaking of the cold climates, uh, there is seasonal blood pressure variation. Um, and a meta-analysis showed that there's an average blood pressure decline in the summer of five over three. So not a lot, of course, but, um, but it's, uh, of course, uh, varies patient to patient. Um, so be aware of that. So uh, starting treatment, this is where the risk factors become important. Uh, for grade two, that one's easy. Anyone with blood pressure over 160, over 100 should be started on medications immediately. For grade one hypertension, you should start medications for patients in the high risk group. Um, and that includes patients with CKD, uh, CKD3 or more. And then lifestyle intervention can be tried in these patients if they don't have uh, if they're not high risk, you can uh, do lifestyle intervention for three to six months prior to starting medications. So blood pressure targets, these, this is where some of the variation starts to creep in from study to study. So the easiest one is the ACC, uh, the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association. They recommend less than 130 over 80 for all patients. Uh, easy enough. The International Society of Hypertension and the uh, European Cardiology Society and European Society of Hypertension uh, are, the, I think, second easiest to follow and make more uh, a little bit more sense. For patients less than 65, they have a blood pressure target less than 130 over 80. Uh, and those greater than 65, they uh, up it by 10, so 140 over 90. The VADOD guidelines um, are based on systolics only. They say for greater than 60, they recommend less than 150 systolic, but they do say that there's added benefit in lowering the systolic to uh, between 130 and 150. For those greater than 60 with diabetes, they're a little more stringent and recommend less than 140 for their systolic. And again, they say added benefit to lowering for, to 130 to 140. And then all other patients, so basically, um, less than 60, they recommend less than 130, which is consistent with uh, the ISH and ACC guidelines. <clears throat> the NICE guidelines, um, that was for, uh, the, that European commission, they uh, recommended for patients less than 80 years old. Th this gets complicated because they have different office and home targets. So uh, for in office, they recommend less than 140 over 90 and uh, less than 135 or 85 for home. And those greater than 80, um, they bump up the systolic by 10. And then the ACP and American uh, Association of Family Physicians uh, recommends less than 140 for those at high cardiovascular risk. And this is where those risk calculators come into play and less than 150 for the elderly. And they don't uh, have any guidelines actually on the general population. Uh, just quickly on the med classes generally recommended. So usually first line, um, on through most of the uh, studies include ACEs, ARBs, uh, dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, and thiazide-like diuretics. Um, 
And then if patients don't tolerate calcium channel or dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, you can uh, use non-dihydropyridine. Uh, one interesting thing to note on this slide, uh, I included thiazide-like and thiazide-type diuretics. All of the guidelines recommend thiazide-like diuretics um, and um, basically say thiazide-type is, it should only be used if thiazide-like diuretics are not available. And the reason this is uh, interesting is because I see way more patients on hydrochlorothiazide than chlorothalidone. Uh, so. Uh, for me, this is one thing that really is going to change my practice, and I'm going to uh, use chlorothalidone as much as possible instead of HCTZ. Um, so just going over some of the, the pharmacological treatment guidelines, this is the, uh, the ISH guidelines. So step one, they recommend using a low-dose combination of ACE and ARB plus dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. Uh, and low dose, they refer to half of the maximum dose. So that's kind of a higher dose to start off with, I thought. I thought. Um, and then if they are low risk, grade one or greater than 80, you can use monotherapy. Uh, if post-stroke, very er uh, elderly or early heart failure, you can use uh, ACE and ARB plus a thiazide. And that's actually consistent with all of the guidelines to use thiazide-like diuretics in uh, post-stroke patients. Uh, in black patients, they recommend um, ACE-ARB plus calcium channel blocker or calcium channel blocker plus thiazide. And uh, there, of course, the, the calcium channel blockers are, are common to both of those treatment strategies. So um, make sure in black patients to start with a calcium channel blocker. And then step two, if you don't have control, is to use uh, go up to full dose combination pill. And then step three, if you need to add on a third, uh, that's when you add the, the third class. So an ACE and ARB plus uh, a calcium channel blocker and thiazide-like diuretic. For resistant hypertension, this is actually consistent with all the guidelines. They all recommend spironolactone um, as fourth line. Uh, and this is just a summary slide recommend uh, on those I ISH core drug treatment strategies. Um, so basically now we've talked about the diagnosis, evaluation, and uh, treatment based on the ISH guidelines. Uh, I just wanted to talk about the NICE guideline uh, drug treatment strategy um, f uh, and how it differs. So for step one, they recommended um, ACER and ARB for diabetics and those under 55 but not black. They recommend calcium channel blockers for age 55 plus without diabetes or for those who are black and do not have diabetes. Uh, and then thiazide-like diuretics for uh, patients who are, don't tolerate calcium channel blockers. Uh, this slide summarizes all of the major hypertension guidelines. And I thought this was a very useful slide. We'll spend a little bit of time on this one. Um, as you can see, the definition of hypertension uh, is pretty consistent throughout with the VA, DOD, the ACC, AHA um, having uh, slightly different uh, definitions from the rest. NICE is the only one that recommends blood pressure less than 140 for the general population, while the other guidelines recommend 130 as the goal systolic. Uh, for a high cardiovascular risk, again, uh, NICE and ACP recommend less than 140, while the others recommend less than 130. For elderly, um, the ACC AHA is an outlier and they recommend less than 130. 
DOD recommends less than 150, but they're the ones, remember that they said they support lowering it to uh, between 130 and 150. The ACP, AFP, and NICE are more lenient and recommend less than 150 in the elderly. Uh, and ISH is again in the middle with recommendations less than 140. Uh, diastolic targets, usually less than 80. However, the NICE and DOD guidelines recommend less than 90. Um, and the treatment regimens differ slightly. I kind of um, spoke about that, but they're generally uh, recommend the same drug classes. Uh, interestingly, the European societies and uh, international society recommend dual therapy as first line. And the most common recommended uh, combinations are ACE-ARB calcium channel blocker and thiazide-like diuretics. And then, like I said, basically uniformly spironolactone recommended for resistant hypertension. Um, I wanted to pause here for a little bit and ask if there are any questions about this slide. I feel like this is the most high yield slide. Um, and this is why I really like the International Society of Hypertension. I feel like they're pretty straightforward. They have, um, they're kind of in the middle uh, of the group for their recommendations. Um, and, and yeah, I, th I think that one is the one that I'm gonna base my practice off of. So uh, any comments on this? Yeah, just a comment. I was recently looking at these guidelines too, as I mentioned to you, and I agree also, they're really practical and they're easy to follow. And um, I think there's a lot of good information. So um, yeah, I just was saying, I, I like them. So in uh, chronic kidney disease, you know, we often go away from uh, thiazides and uh, supposedly they're not effective, but I was reading that maybe metolazone was still effective in chronic kidney disease. I wonder if anyone had any opinion on that. Um, they actually, so for CKD, I uh, included KDGO guidelines. I'll get into that in a little bit. And they do recommend for, of course, GFR less than 30 to switch to loop diuretics um, and also for volume control. But I, I don't specifically know about metolazone. But metolazone is a thiazide-like diuretic, so I guess uh, you can um, uh, you could use it based on these guidelines as well. So, so I, I have a, I guess I have a personally, I have a strong opinion about that. That's um, really backed up by strong evidence. So. So particularly the thiazide-like diuretics, um, but also to some extent thiazide diuretics have antihypertensive effects beyond sodium excretion. Um, and that's been shown in a variety of different ways um, in animals and in humans. And, the, and um, it kind of has been poor... Uh, evidence dissemination that we choose not to give people thiazide like diuretics below a GFR of 30. Um, there are, you know, once you start giving these people thiazide like diuretics, you'll see plenty of them respond very nicely and just as well as other patients with higher GFRs. And they often have substantially better side effect profiles than the drugs that these patients have available to them because of how severe their hypertension is once their, their CKD progresses. So I would really strongly encourage people um, to, to just in a cohort of patients over the next few years, 
trichlorthalidone or mirtolazone on patients with stage four CKD and see how they respond. Um, you know, I have, you know, and, and uh, I think this is a really important teaching point. I'm actually surprised that any of these guidelines, like KDGO is often quite behind the curve, but I'm kind of surprised that any of these places are actually still recommending to switch to loose, which we commonly see really don't have much of an antihypertensive effect. Um, it looks like it looks like Cadigo recommends switching to loops and the others don't mention it at all. Right. Because that's not really an evidence-based recommendation anymore. That's just like wrong. Yeah, I agree with John about the chlorothalidone. The only issue I'm finding clinically in the clinics with metolazone is sometimes it will worsen your AKI. I mean, it will, it will raise the creatinine more so than chlorothalidone does. So yeah. I've, I've used chlorothalidone at higher doses, like 50 and I think I get away with that, but the higher dose metolazone on a daily use, you know, I get into trouble with, but for CHF patients where you see them weekly or TI week, um, that they, they tend to tolerate the, tolerate the metolazone more yeah. than just for yeah. hypertension. I agree with Lama. That's my practice too. Yep. So I'll talk real quick about, um, uh, the KDGO guidelines here in a second. Um, and, but I also wanted, there's some caveats that they mention in most of the guidelines for the different common comorbidities of hypertension. So there's a, a slightly different uh, recommendations for patients with CAD, stroke, heart failure, CKD, COPD, inflammatory disease, uh, rheumatic diseases, and psychiatric diseases. So for hypertension and CKD, um, uh, I wanted to talk about this one first, obviously. Um, so CKD is associated with resistant hypertension, mast hypertension, and elevated nocturnal blood pressures. And uh, RAS inhibitors as monotherapy are actually recommended uniformly um, as first line uh, for patients with CKD and hypertension. Um, so the KDGO guidelines, I talked about the targets with all of the other guidelines and they were basically either 130 or 140 is what they recommended for systolics. KDGO 2020 uh, best practice guidelines recommend a blood pressure target of less than 120 for patients with CKD. And they based this off a bunch of studies, including um, the SPRINT trial. Um, they did uh, secondary analyses of um, the uh, data used in the NICE uh, guidelines. Um, and basically they said there's evidence uh, this is a quote from their guidelines, that evidence that targeting systolic blood pressure less than 120 when measured under standard conditions causes reductions in cardiovascular events and all-cause mortality. And they said in most patients, including the frail and elderly, these benefits appear to outweigh the risks of harm. Um, uh, again, they recommend starting ACE-ARB uh, as first line. Uh, and then I uh, just noted that for transplant patients, they recommend ARB or calcium channel blocker as first line. Uh, so again, here, I wanted to discuss um, or kind of um, have you guys uh, weigh in on the KDGO guidelines and how they're so different um, from the other guidelines. And I feel like a systolic blood pressure goal less than 120, um, that's pretty aggressive. Uh, any comments on that? No, I kind of agree with the lower blood pressure based on the sprint trials. For those, obviously, mm -hmm. who are not elderly and frail. I mean, if the, even the elderly patients 
I've had so many of my patients with CKD3 and progress to four with nephrotic ranges of proteinuria and almost end up on dialysis because of lack of blood pressure control. So, I mean, as long as they're not frail, dizzy, lower is better. I don't know if anybody other people have any other thoughts. Let's just say the JNC are very loose with their guidelines. Yeah, I just, I feel like if I have a patient with blood pressure of, let's say, you know, 130 um, and they're 80 years old, I would hesitate, uh, especially if they're maxed out on three blood pressure medications, I would hesitate to add a fourth um, just to, to get that extra um, benefit. Yeah, 130 yeah. is good. I mean, if the majority of their blood ahead, pressures Mama, are 130, indeed, and they're not truly creeping up into the 140s and 150s. I'm not sure if someone's trying to comment, but. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I just thought that can, was interesting. Can that people hear? Oh, yeah. Did, did Lama already respond? Sorry. Yeah, she did. Yeah, I was, I was saying, I think lower is better because, you know, for treatment of proteinuria, as long as they're not, you know, symptomatic, obviously, if somebody's, you know, frail, uh, you don't want to drop their blood pressure. Um, but, you know, right. from a kidney standpoint, proteinuria standpoint, lower is better. And that does decrease cardiovascular events as well. So I kind of agree with this, as long as they're not frail and elderly. Yeah, yeah, I think the, one, the only thing I would add is that Sprint actually explicitly looked at the question of whether or not to do what we're all saying it, we're hesitant to do, whether or not in elderly people, whether we should continue to push their blood pressure down, even though we know some of, some of those people get AKI, AKI when we do that. And their answer in you know, a well-designed, large randomized trial was that it improved all-cause mortality and cardiovascular right. disease right. without increasing CKD. So I, I, think, I think what these trials are doing is they're actually directly addressing our hesitancy and, and giving us evidence to be bolder about doing it. But I think we have to, to do that slowly and do quick follow-up BMPs to make sure we're not causing AKI. I agree 100%. That's why I said it, you know, it decreases, I mean, there's, it improves, you know, cardiovascular mortality, all, you know, all events. And, you know, we are kind of, kind of slow to take the guidelines. Same thing, similar to the SGLT2 inhibitors. I feel like when we have a good large design trial, we just don't act upon, you know, the guidelines. Right. And yeah, interestingly too, in addition to cardiovascular and all-cause mortality, there were also, uh, based on the SPRINT trial, uh, secondary analyses that uh, suggested the intensive blood pressure lowering uh, decreases incidence of mild cognitive impairment uh, in patients greater than 80 years old. So there's a lot of benefits to um, to decreasing the blood pressure uh, to less than 120, like you guys mentioned. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. Uh, hey, this is Masa. I'd like to add one more thing, but so there is a study post hoc analysis and try to look into like a heterogeneity of those effect in the result of the spring trial and then there is a one like you know paper 
just came out last year and then that's <laughs> they did a fancy methodology like you know random forest machine learning technique and then the answer was smoking cessation is a key so i don't know this is a way to go but People try to look into why those lower is better, but we knew those like you know, J-shaped carb and then causing a higher mortality in the lower blood pressure or lower diastolic like people with the lower diastolic blood pressure and maybe like you know cardiac ischemic event. But so seems you know if you smoke or recently you know smoked, those effects like you know lowering a hypertension benefit going to be outset by smoking uh, like a smoking adverse events so i just put it in the chat box about this trial so uh, not trial then yeah that's just like a postdoc analysis so but i don't know this is a way to go i cannot comment but yeah this is one like you know interesting information so but i'm 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 still surprised, yeah. And then everything like you know we did, and then the answer was the smoking cessation. So, <laughs> so. all right. So I'll just quickly uh, talk about the other recommendations. So, um, for patients with CAD, they recommend beta blockers uh, as first line as well. Um, for those with previous stroke, I mentioned thighs. I like diuretics. Uh, in combination with ACE ARB or calcium channel blockers first line. Um, for patients with heart failure, the, they recommend the angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor combos uh, as an alternative to ACEs and ARBs. Um, patients with uh, COPD, um, they recommend ARB, not ACE, uh, and then the calcium channel blocker diuretic. And then beta blockers, um, beta one selective only can be used in um, those with CAD and CHF. Um, interestingly, uh, inflammatory rheumatic diseases, I didn't realize they're highly associated with um, poorly controlled hypertension with increased cardiovascular uh, risk that's only partially related to cardiovascular risk factors. Um, so any inflammatory rheumatic diseases in your, you know, your risk calculator should increase your cardiovascular risk by one step. Um, again, it's not that relevant to us because patients with CKD are usually in that high risk group anyway. Um, uh, just a note on psychiatric diseases. Uh, there are some, let me, I didn't uh, put down the medications, but um, uh, a lot of the psychiatric meds I mentioned can uh, increase uh, your blood pressure. Uh, and there's uh, an association between depression uh, and cardiovascular mor morbidity and mortality. Uh, so blood pressure control is critical uh, in these patients. And then, of course, calcium channel blockers, alpha blockers should be used in care with uh, patients with orth orthostatic hypotension that's induced by the serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So I'll move on quickly to resistant and secondary hypertension. Um, so resistant hypertension uh, defined as a seated blood pressure greater than 140 over 90 uh, in a patient treated with three or more antihypertensive medications, like I mentioned. And then they define pseudo-resistance, which is poor blood pressure measurement technique, white coat uh, effect, uh, non-adherence, and suboptimal choices in antihypertensive therapy. Excuse me. 
um, as well as the uh, substance or drug-induced hypertension, uh, as well as secondary hypertension. Uh, and resistant hypertension affects around 10% of hypertensive individuals. Um, and approximately 50% of patients diagnosed with resistant hypertension have pseudo-resistance rather than true um, resistant hypertension. Uh, let me see if there's, uh, and just to, for recommendations, um, of course, optimize the current regimen and then add low-dose spironolactone as the fourth uh, agent um, for those with serum potassium less than 4.5. Uh, quick word on secondary hypertension. Um, all the guidelines say to refer to a specialist, um, so that's us. Um, a specific cause of secondary hypertension can be identified in 5 to 10% of patients. Um, and the, the most common causes are renal parenchymal disease, renovascular hypertension, primary aldosteronism, sleep apnea, and the substance or drug-induced. Um, and this is just a, a summary slide uh, of the causes of secondary hypertension. Um, and I know this talk is supposed to be on the guideline-based hypertension management, but this is the fun stuff. So I decided to include uh, a slide on this. I won't spend too much time. I think we're all pretty familiar with the causes of secondary hypertension and what we see on chemistry and UA, um, and then the further testing that's needed for these conditions. I have a question for like Dr. Nizar and Dr. Yamada. We have a patient on service right now who has resistant hypertension or difficult to control hypertension. And we've kind of ruled all of these things out. What do you go to next once we've ruled all of these out? Well, we haven't ruled out everything. He's, you know, he hasn't had a sleep study, right? And he actually does have a small um, adenoma in the reno. Um, it was incidental, but we didn't work it up because his aldo and renin ratio are normal. Yeah. So I guess we did work it up though, if with the, ra the ratio or if that was normal. Well, we didn't do an adrenal vein sampling. Oh, right? sure. We don't really know if it's truly normal, but so he's for 35 his years old and he's Caucasian. So for his case, uh, I think maybe if he has CKD, maybe that itself is contributing to the hypertension. That's true. I guess, is there anything once, if we did rule all of these things out, then what do you do? I just treat the number. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> yep, you treat his hypertension like we're doing, Maria. Okay. He has CKD4 yep. right now, right? So his yeah. GFR yeah. is actually 16. He's almost CKD5. So That's... he has a reason to have high blood pressure. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Yep. Great. All right, uh, only have about five minutes left, but I definitely wanted to touch on hypertension in pregnancy. Uh, this is one of my uh, definitely weak spots. So um, uh, hypertension in pregnancy, it's a condition that affects five to 10% of pregnancies worldwide. The maternal risks uh, include placental abruption, stroke, uh, organ failure, uh, DIC, and the fetal risks include uh, intrauterine growth retardation, preterm birth, and intrauterine death. So there's um, uh, the following conditions um, are, are associated with hypertension in pregnancy. There's pre-existing hypertension, and that's defined as uh, starting before pregnancy or at less than 20 weeks of gestation, and it lasts greater than six weeks postpartum. Gestational hypertension uh, is hypertension that starts greater than 20 weeks of gestation and lasts less than six weeks postpartum. 
and then there's pre-existing hypertension plus superimposed gestational hypertension, uh, and that's um, uh, the above with proteinuria. There's preeclampsia, that's hypertension with proteinuria greater than 300 mg um, per 24 hours. Um, and then there's eclampsia with hypertension with seizures, headaches, visual disturbances, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting. Uh, and that's uh, immediate treatment and delivery uh, required for that. Uh, and then HELP syndrome, of course, which also requires immediate treatment and delivery. Uh, for blood pressure management in pregnant patients, uh, drug treatment at persistent blood pressures greater than 150 over 95 is recommended in all patients. Um, drug uh, treatment with uh, persistent blood pressure greater than 140 over 90 uh, is recommended in gestational hypertension, pre-existing hypertension, uh, and uh, hypertension with subclinical hypertension-mediated uh, organ damage at any time. Uh, and then the first choices for medical management um, are methyl dopa, beta blockers, uh, especially labetalol, um, dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, uh, and interestingly, all of the guidelines, I don't know why, but they all say non-capsular nifedipine. Uh, so that was interesting. I don't know exactly why I didn't um, uh, have time to look that up, but uh, of course, contraindicated our RAS blockade. Um, and then severe hypertension greater than 170 over 110, uh, immediate hospitalization is indicated and treatments with IV, uh, labetalol or other uh, beta blockers. Um, and then, yeah, I don't need to go into, oh, for breastfeeding, that's an uh, interesting one. Um, all antihypertensives are excreted into breast milk at low concentrations. So they recommend avoiding atenolol, propranolol, uh, and nifedipine because of the high concentration in milk. And I interestingly have a patient who we started on nifedipine during pregnancy. Um, uh, and then the OB-GYN actually wanted her to be on that but now she's breastfeeding and she's still on nifedipine. So I want to switch her to amylodipine. Um, and then hypertensive emergencies, we're all pretty familiar with. I, I don't think I need to go in, uh, into detail on these. Um, just a note that hypertensive urgency um, can be treated with orals. And that's if you have marked uh, elevation in blood pressure without end organ damage. Uh, here's just some recommendations on which um, medications to use for each uh, condition. I just wanted to include a quick summary slide here uh, just to kind of go over basically what most of the guidelines say. This is a little bit of my opinion, so this is a, uh, this is a little bit of a subjective summary, um, but most uh, guidelines define hypertension as blood pressure greater than 140 over 90. They recommend a target generally of 130 over 80 for the general population and 140 over 80 for the elderly. Uh, again, for CKD patients, uh, less than 120 is recommended by KDGO. Uh, ACEs, ARBs, uh, dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers and thiazide-like diuretics are first line. Um, and then maximize all three for better blood pressure control and all of the guidelines recommend spironolactone for resistant hypertension. Uh, and then of course there are the caveats for the uh, specific comorbid conditions that we talked about. All right, any uh, further discussion? Um, why did you say that for, you said something about not no lysinopril but losartan for um, COPD? Maybe I missed that. 
Yeah, they, that's one of the recommendations that most um, uh, of the guidelines uh, say. And I oh, think is it that because might cough. Yeah, I think why? so. Yeah. Oh, so that they don't. That's my guess. It. But okay. I, I, I don't know for sure. I didn't look that mm -hmm. up specifically. But uh, but but I think that that's probably what they're getting at. It's not to confuse the picture of their other um, yeah. uh, comorbidities. Thanks, Zero. Sorry if it was really basic and kind of dry, but hopefully you guys learned something. Never dry. <laughs> Melissa had, Melissa, I don't want to say what you just said in the chat if you want to speak up, but you had some nice uh, stuff mentioning here. Okay, so she had she gave a reference for Lactmed, which I'm guessing is a a database to look for lactation related side effects and con okay, cool. So that's a great reference which I didn't know about. Um, cool, great job, Euro. Thank you. Thank you, guys. <laughs>